Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving Live. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. That's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's get this show on the road. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Collaborative Problem Solving at School. My goodness, it's been a busy week since the last show that we did. I've been in numerous schools since then. And... um, What I've been working with with a lot of schools is I've been helping them work on their vision, their vision for their school discipline program, their vision for what they hope to be for the challenging kids in their building. A lot of folks accept the school discipline program as, um, you know, a fait accompli. It's just the way things are, the way things have always been. And, of course, schools that have lots of challenging kids or are struggling with the few that they have, um, those are the schools that actually have to give thought to uh, what they want their school discipline program to to look like. That's because they're quite aware of the fact that their school discipline program isn't working for the kids to whom it is most frequently being applied. You know, by the way, it's no different really with parents. If, If you're lucky and you are blessed with well-behaved kids. And those of you who have heard me speak know that um, uh, I don't think that parents of well-behaved kids should be taking quite so much credit for the fact that their children are well-behaved. I think that um, parents of well-behaved kids take much too much credit for the fact that their kids are well-behaved. And, of course, the corollary to that is that parents of not-so-well-behaved kids get much too much blame for the fact that their kids are not so well-behaved. But who are the parents who mostly need to give thought to what they're doing in terms of discipline? The parents for whom standard discipline isn't working. Parents of really well-behaved kids often don't have to give a great deal of thought to what they're thinking about their kids and why they're behaving the way they do and what they should be doing when their kids don't behave as well as they would like them to because parents of well-behaved kids have well-behaved kids. They don't really have to give the matter much thought. Um, But the corollary there, of course, is that schools whose discipline program isn't working, for the students to whom the program is most frequently being applied, those schools, they need to give thought to their discipline program. 
And lots of times, that means for me, in terms of the help I give to schools, the ones that I'm working with anyways, is helping them give thought to their vision. Um, what is it? What are the kids who are accessing the school discipline program the most? Why are they the way they are? How come they're so challenging? How come they're not responding so well to the school discipline program as at present? This is worth giving thought to. And then once you have a good feel, and we'll come back to that question in a minute, who are these challenging kids and how do they get to be that way? What do we want to do so that we as a building are more responsive to them? What do we want to create in our building so that we're not just teaching to the well-behaved kids who get their homework done, show up to class on time, participate appropriately in class discussions, get all their work done. What kind of building do we want to be for the kids who are challenging? And what do they need from us? And what can we design in our building so that they are getting what they need from us. Of course, there are many things that we could be saying about the challenging kids in our building, things that would not take us very far. We could uh, throw in the towel and say, well, mm, you, you know what neighborhood the ill-behaved kids are from, or in some of the more diverse parts of the country, you know what country the challenging kids are from, or um, you know what socioeconomic status the challenging kids in our building are from. Of course, those are all things we can't do anything about. And secondly, those aren't the reason the challenging kids in the building are challenging in the first place. Challenging? Well, why are they challenging? When we're thinking about what our vision is, we probably ought to be thinking about how these kids come to be challenging in the first place. And of course, does collaborative problem solving have anything to say about that? Uh, absolutely. Collaborative problem solving suggests that challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills. If they had the skills not to be challenging, they wouldn't be challenging. Because doing well is always preferable to not doing well, but only if you have the skills to pull it off. And of course, all of that traces back to the core mantra of collaborative problem solving, kids do well if they can. Kids do well if they can, by the way, is a great place for a school discipline program vision statement to start. Great place for it. Uh, in our building, we believe that kids do well if they can. We believe that doing well is always preferable to not doing well, and we believe that if a kid isn't doing well, whether it's a social domain or the emotional domain or it's the behavioral domain, if a kid's not doing well in our building, we believe that it's because he doesn't have the skills to do well. And our school discipline program is designed around that, how to make sure that we are being responsive to kids who are lacking crucial cognitive skills that are setting the stage for their social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. By the way, here's the nice thing about having a vision. Before we go on with our vision, the nice thing about having a vision is it gives you shoot for. tells you, here's what we are striving to be. Here's what we are aiming for. And then it gives you a sense about where you're trying to head and what ingredients you might need to add to the mix in your building to try to make sure that you're heading in that direction. And perhaps best of all, it lets you know, especially if you're establishing benchmarks for getting there, it helps you know, are you getting there? 
And it helps you approach people who are having trouble getting there. I've always said collaborative problem solving is a staff development program for staff in a school building. It's not just a way of helping challenging kids. It's a vision, it's a set of lenses for everybody in the building. How are we viewing kids? And by the way, if you really wanted to take it to its extreme, not just the challenging ones, all of them. Every kid in the building would be doing well if he could be doing well. And every kid in the building, whether it's academics or social, emotional, and behavioral functioning, uh, if they had the skills to be doing well, they'd be doing well. And they need skills from us if they're not doing well. The advantage of having a vision statement is to be able to go to faculty, staff, whether this is a school or now an inpatient unit or a residential facility or a juvenile detention setting, the opportunity to go to staff and say, we're heading in a certain direction in our building, and um, we've noticed you seem to be struggling a little bit with where we've been trying to head. What's up? That's how you gather information from staff members about what they're struggling with, what's getting in their way. Uh, the answer to that question, of course, tells you what that staff member needs to be able to start getting with the program, so to speak, but getting better at collaborative problem solving, to be more specific. We've noticed that you're having, still sending a lot of kids to the office. What's up? We've noticed that Billy seems to be sitting outside the hallway in your classroom a lot. What's up? That works if it's helping people see that what they're doing with their challenging kids is not consistent with the vision statement for the school discipline program for the building. Of course, another angle to this who do we want to involve in the creation of that vision statement? Uh, does this want to be solely the administrators? Should it just be uh, the brain trust of the building? My answer would be preferably definitely not. I think you want as many people from as many walks of life in a school building participating in that vision statement. Because you see, if you don't get and the creation of the vision, then you're not going to have everybody on board with the vision. And if you don't have everybody on board with the vision, then the kinks are going to start popping up quickly. Quite frankly, I'd rather resolve the kinks in our vision before we even get that vision statement completed. I think we want to iron those kinks out before we roll out our vision statement have those hard discussions, rather than having a top-down vision statement, I think we need a collaboratively arrived at vision statement. So we've all had participation in the creation of something that affects us all. And then when we ask somebody why they're having trouble pursuing the vision, they were involved in the creation of the vision. We got those kinks worked out ahead of time. If they were involved in the creation of the vision, then collaborative problem solving, the vision, isn't being imposed upon them. It's something they were a party to. And then, since we've already worked out the kinks, 
what's likely to be getting in their way isn't necessarily going to be philosophical, although I suppose it's possible, isn't going to be I disagree with us heading in this direction in the first place, isn't going to be um, we don't have time to do this in our building, I disagree completely, it's going to be that they're struggling with certain facets of implementing collaborative problem solving. Maybe it's uh, drilling in the empathy step. Maybe it's um, coming up with solutions that are realistic and definitely mutually satisfactory in the invitation uh, or in the brainstorming phase of the model. Um, but when we go to them and we say, what's up? How come you're struggling with the model? What's getting in your way? Better to have buy-in ahead of time than to have people feel like this new vision has been imposed on them and they weren't buying in in the first place. All right. So each place that's trying to work on their school discipline program is giving thought to who are these challenging kids? What's walking in our door? And how are we going to create programs around them? Not just the lenses we're wearing but perhaps how we structure our day, what, what we make available to them, who's working with them, communication structures uh, to make sure that those challenging kids are getting what they need from us. What's that going to look like? One thing that I'm hoping it will look like is, um, well, what you might want to give a lot of thought to is how to make the ALSA, the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, an integral part of the paperwork flow uh, for assessing challenging kids in your building. Once again, and I'll probably mention this every week of this program, but once again, um, the ALSIP has two parts, the lagging skill section and the unsolved problem section. The lagging skill section helps you make sure you got the right lenses on. And yes, having the right lenses on comes first, not second. Got to have the right lenses on. Got to make sure everybody in the building understands that challenging behavior is the byproduct of lagging skills and demands for those skills. If we're not aware, then Plan B, collaborative problem solving, comes off as very techniquey, kind of a techniquey way to try to get challenging kids to start behaving themselves. But collaborative problem solving isn't a technique; it's a process. And the process really makes very little sense unless people have the right lenses on. Why are challenging kids challenging? Because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. When are they challenging? When the demands being placed upon them have exceeded their capacity to respond adaptively. In other words, when the demands being placed upon them have tapped into skills that they're lacking. That's when challenging kids are challenging. The second section of the ALSIP, of course, is the lagging skill section. This tells us specifically what we're working on, the conditions under which the demands being placed upon a kid have exceeded his capacity to respond adaptively, whether that's being in the hallway or starting a particular assignment or working with a particular partner or being in the lunchroom or being at recess or being on the school bus or being wherever or doing whatever. These are the highly specific unsolved problems that this kid is having a great deal of difficulty solving. And once again, how we're going to solve those problems, not unilaterally. That's plan A. Collaboratively, that's plan B. All right, 
So one thing we might want to include in our vision statement is some information about how when a classroom teacher or anybody starts to feel like a challenging kid in the classroom or in the building, um, needs some extra help. What's the referral mechanism for that? And who meets to complete the alpha, make sure we have the right lenses on, pinpoint the specific unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating a kid's challenging episodes, which unsolved problems do we want to start working on first? Because you can't work on everything at once. You've got to pick two or three. Otherwise, you're going to get overwhelmed, and the challenging kid is going to get overwhelmed. And let's get to work. What else do we need in our vision statement? Uh, well, so far we've covered who are these challenging kids and how they get to be that way. What's the paperwork flow on identifying them? What do they need from us? Well, number one, they need for us to be wearing the right lenses, but we've covered that already. Number two, they, we need, they, need to be help, they need us to identify these specific conditions under which they become challenging. We've covered that already. What else do challenging needs from us, kids need from us in the building? They need us to communicate well. We need mechanisms of communicating so that the left hand knows what the right hand was doing. I was in a facility this morning and I told them they had a bad case of winging it disorder. If the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, then the left hand and the right hand are both winging it. And this challenging kid is still having trouble because winging it doesn't cut it. We need to make sure everybody's on the same page. First of all, with the right lenses. Secondly, with what unsolved problems need to be solved so this kid's not so challenging anymore. Thirdly, what are our priorities so we all know what we're working on? What else do they need? They need us to get good at plan B. So they need us to communicate about all this stuff, and they need us to get good at plan B. What mechanisms do we have in our building for helping people get up to plan to speed on plan B? What uh, is that meetings? Is that something after school? Is that reading a particular book? I can tell you a particular book you might want to read. Um, how are we getting up to speed with this in our building? And how are we giving staff opportunities for practice? And how are we making sure that they get the feedback they need if and the support that they need um, if their first few attempts at Plan B don't go so well? And let's face it, the first few attempts at Plan B don't always go so well. Um, I've always said, I might have said this in the last program, the, the hardest two plan Bs are the first one and the second one. The first one because you never did this before, and the second one because the first one probably didn't go so well. How do we make sure that people are supported in this? Let's face it, you know, there's a lot of things that we expect classroom teachers to be good at lickety-split. Uh, most of the times that we expect them to be good at something lickety-split, uh, it's an unrealistic expectation. And let's add getting good at plan B to that list. Getting good at plan B, there's a learning curve there. And while some people's learning curve is steeper than others, let there be no doubt. Um, even if plan B is your natural style, a bunch of different things about doing plan B that uh, can get in people's way, they're going to need some support. 
best to do this as a group. Let's face it, the group participated in the crafting of the vision statement in the first place. Who are these kids? How'd they get to be this way? What do they need from us? What's the paperwork flow? How are we going to communicate about it? And now the last part. How are we going to get good at plan B and make sure that we have some follow-up on this stuff over time? Well, uh, some of you might be familiar with a form that I created to try to ensure follow-up, the Plan B flowchart. If you're not familiar with it, just go to the Lives in the Balance website, www.livesinthebalance.org. It's probably how you got connected to this program today. And um, paperwork tab, and print yourself out a copy of the Plan B flowchart. Um, it's the way to list the two or three unsolved problems that you're working on at any given time with any given challenging kid, and you're tracking the progress that you're making on each lag uh, unsolved problem over time to make sure that you see it through to a successful resolution. Once a problem has been durably solved, it comes off of the Plan B flowchart, and another one of our unsolved problems from the ALSIP the list that we created on the ALSIP in the Unsolved Problems section, goes on to the Plan B flowchart. And that's how we try to keep track of this stuff over time. One of the biggest pitfalls I see for people is that they feel like they're just going to have to do Plan B once, and they're done, one and done. Um, probably not helping challenging kids, just like helping kids with any other developmental delay. This is a marathon, not a sprint. This is not going to be a one-shot deal. We're going to have to track this kid over time, keep track of his unsolved problems, make sure none of them go into hibernation, you know, just kind of disappear on us. They're not solved yet. They've just disappeared temporarily. The problem with unsolved problems that have disappeared temporarily is that if they're not solved yet, then they're coming back. They're coming back. All they've done is they've gone into hibernation. We want to make sure they don't. That's what the Plan B flowchart is for. So the Plan B flowchart is your living, breathing action plan, shall we say, um, for how to keep track of what's going on with each challenging kid in our building over time. Do we need to do this with every challenge, with every kid in the building? No, that would be absolutely overwhelming and also absolutely unnecessary. But the kids you do need to fill out an ALSIP for, at least initially, and the kids you need to fill out the Plan B flowchart for and track them over time, are the two dozen or so kids in the building who are accounting for the lion's share of disciplinary referrals and disciplinary actions. Those are the ones we especially need a disciplined vision for our building for, because those are the ones who, quite frankly, we seem to be losing. Lots of schools don't have a vision statement for their discipline program. And lots of schools, if they took a good look at who the challenging kids are and what they need from the folks in the building, if they took a close look at it, they would come to the very quick conclusion that what they're doing now is ill-suited to the needs of the vast majority of challenging kids in the building. It's not meeting 
what's really going on with these kids. It's not really addressing what's getting in their way. That's why we want to create a vision. These vision meetings can be fascinating because that's where you air all your school discipline dirty laundry. There's people who are spare the rod and spoil the child people, and there's people who are not spare the rod and spoil the child people. Once again, we've got to get those kinks out of the way in those hard discussions that we have as we're working on our vision. Because once again, if we don't get them out of the way early, they just come back to haunt us later. Me, I'd rather get all that dirty laundry on the table. I'm not quite frankly, dirty laundry is probably not the best word for it. We want to just make sure that everybody in the building gets their concerns on the table. We want to come to a unified view. Who are these challenging kids? Who do we want to be for them? Let's go back to the uh, unsolved problems section because a lot of people attribute challenging behavior in kids to who's taking care of the kids at home. And I'd, I'd be the first to agree that Sometimes what's going on at home is not ideal. I um, think we don't want to be blaming, though. possible that what's going on at home is not ideal because when the great deck shuffler of kids dealt that home their hand, they got dealt a challenging hand, and nothing will make a family look more dysfunctional than having a challenging kid whose difficulties don't get better. Well, that will make us all look bad. Um, we don't want to be blaming parents. Plus, you know, if you write in the unsolved problems section, um, have parents are poor disciplinarians at home, and then you're trying to do plan B with a kid. Um, let's face it, here's the empathy step, and here's what it sounds like. Kid, we've no your parents are poor disciplinarians. What's up? Hard for me to imagine that we're going to make much headway on that one. But by the way, also hard for me to imagine that we're going to make much headway on the following. Kid, we've noticed from your that you're from this foreign country. What's up? Nah. We've noticed uh, that you come from that neighborhood. What's up? away. We've noticed that your family doesn't have a lot of money. What's up? We've noticed that your father's in jail. What's up? We've noticed that your brother got in trouble just like you do. What's up? We've noticed that your parents are divorced. What's up? I uh, think we're going to make a whole lot more headway if we're focused on the specific conditions in which a particular challenging kid is becoming challenging. We've noticed you've been getting in a lot of trouble on the school bus lately. What's up? We've noticed that you've been having a lot of trouble getting so started on your social studies project lately. What's up? See, your vision statement reflects what you really think is going on with challenging kids. And we don't want there to be in your vision statement that the reason the challenging kids in your building are challenging is because they're from a low socioeconomic status or because their parents are divorced. Uh, it's entirely conceivable that they may not be coming from the ideal households. It's not completely clear that that's something people at school can do a whole lot about. Those of you who've heard me speak know collaborative problem solving is a very pragmatic model. 
It focuses on the stuff that we can actually do something about. As some of you have heard me say, if all we focus on is the stuff we can't do anything about, then it makes sense to me that we'd come to the conclusion that we can't do anything to help this kid. When we focus on lagging skills and unsolved problems, we come to the conclusion that there is a great deal we can do to help this challenging kid. We can figure out what his unsolved problems are and solve them collaboratively. We can figure out what his lagging skills are, so we got the right lenses on. And those lagging skills and unsolved problems together help us know that this kid's challenging behavior is highly predictable, and we can intervene, therefore, planfully, proactively. We might want to include that in our vision statement as well, that the way our building responds to challenging kids is as proactive as humanly possible. The ALSIP should help you get there because the ALSIP, in identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems, makes challenging kids very, very predictable. Many of you know that I often say, I'm, I'm accustomed to having people say to me, I never know when the kid's going to blow. We, we never know um, when he's going to lose it. But as you've also heard me say on numerous occasions, those theories are almost always disproved. Once you figure out what skills a kid is lacking, once you know what problems are reliably and predictably precipitating his challenging moments, he's a highly predictable kid. Your vision statement for your school discipline program tells you who you are, what you're trying to be, who the challenging kids are, and helps you get a good handle on whether you're getting there with them. And it helps you point out to people who are having trouble getting there in the building, helps you find out what they're having trouble with and what they could be working on. We do have a call. Let's take it. See if I have the technology down pat today. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, really enjoying your information. Good. A question, a two-part question. Um, do you make a distinction between a lagging skill and a medical neurological condition like OCD? That's the first part. The second part, are we talking about, a manage, about, about managing the condition or a cure? Good questions. Do you want to stay on the line as I answer them just in case you have additional questions? Sure. Um, I think that, um, in the first place, collaborative problem solving doesn't view uh, a diagnosis as necessarily an indication of a neurobiochemical medical condition. I understand that that perspective exists out there. And, of course, we can't deny that something like obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, to use the disorder that you mentioned, we can't deny that it may have a neurobiochemical origin, at least in part. But I, as some of you have heard me say, I was trained that everything is 100% nature and 100% nurture. What that means is that um, almost nothing in mental health is all nature or all nurture. Of course, if we're busy blaming parents or adult caregivers, well, now we're going the all nurture route. And
And if we're saying that a particular way in which somebody is behaving in a way that is maladaptive is all neurobiochemical, then we're going the entirely the nature route. And I've become convinced over time that everything's 100% nature and 100% nurture. In other words, the folks who taught me that in graduate school, I've come to believe, were right. When, and so what I've begun saying lately in a slightly flip way, but I think people understand what I'm saying, and I usually refer to this uh, with regard to other diagnoses, but I think it would be fitting for obsessive compulsive disorder as well. I've always said that kids who have whatever disorder don't necessarily exhibit the signs of that disorder, the behaviors associated with it full-time. They exhibit the behaviors associated with that disorder part-time. And the best example I can use of that, of that, of course, is oppositional defiant disorder, the one that I have worked with most extensively in my career. Kids who are oppositional aren't oppositional full-time. They're oppositional part-time. And in my flip way, I sometimes say, in other words, they have part-time oppositional defiant disorder. When do they look like they have oppositional defiant disorder? And this is the crucial definition. When the demands of the environment exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. When what the environment is throwing at them exceeds the skills that they have to respond to those demands. That tells us it takes two to tango, and although that is not perfectly nature and nurture per se, it does tell us that there's more going on than just chemistry that resides within the kid. Also, there are kids who are predisposed genetically to have a certain condition, and they never develop it. Because there's nice models out there telling us that disorders tend to develop not only because someone has a familial or genetic predisposition to the disorder, but because factors in the environment, perhaps stress, perhaps other things, um, cause that predisposition to manifest itself. Everything's 100% nature and 100% nurture. So, no, I actually don't make a huge distinction between lagging skills and whatever neurobiochemical factors may be giving rise to those lagging skills, I actually think that the vast majority of mental health disorders can be more productively defined, not in terms of the behaviors that comprise them. That just tells us what this individual looks like when the demands being placed upon them exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. It tells us what they're doing. In the case of oppositional defined disorder, they're pitching a fit when the demands of the environment exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. In the case of obsessive-compulsive disorder, they're obsessing and compulsing. Um, I think that the vast majority of disorders are better understood through the lagging skills that give rise to them, skills related to flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem-solving, organization, planning, the ability to take into account how one's behavior is affecting others, the ability to respond non-impulsively, the ability to use language to navigate all of these things, the ability to take into account situational factors that would necessitate an adjustment in a plan of action. I can make a very strong case in the kids who I've worked with who had obsessive compulsive disorder or any other disorder 
that it was the lack of those skills that gave rise to the behavioral manifestation that ultimately became called that particular disorder. Does that all make sense? Um, starting to <laughs> uh, quite quite a bit. I, I would just um, an analogy. Um, I can't lift a forty pound weight if my arm is broken. So I have a lagging skill, but the reason is medical, and I will eventually be able to lift the forty pound weight when my bone mends. Well, and I think that you're making a parallel between. Um, physical conditions and conditions that are related to mental health. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure that the parallel is quite so applicable. And we might be talking about apples and oranges here. Um, yes, the person who breaks their leg um, has presumably a purely medical condition. And yes, if they want to learn how to use their leg again, um, and perhaps just to continue the analogy, um, walk without a limp. Um, then there may be some special skills training that um, comes into play. On the other hand, now, now let's see if the everything's 100% nature and 100% nurture parallel continues. I'd actually want to hear a little bit more about how they broke their leg. I'd want to hear, did they do something impulsive that put their leg in harm's way? Now all of a sudden, yes, while the broken leg is a purely medical condition, what set the stage for that broken leg? Something that wasn't necessarily medical at all. Well, how about it? If it's an inherent condition at birth. Uh, you know, uh, a mental health condition, I assume, can be thought of that way. You're born this way. The synapses aren't firing the way they're supposed to. And uh, you, it gives rise to some lagging skills. But we can't fix those synapses. And yeah, well, we're we talking management or cure. Yes, but just the mere statement that you're saying that someone was born. Um, I, I'm not sure I buy that. I, I'd be the first to agree that um, there are kids who certainly come into the world, uh, and we generically refer to them as having a difficult temperament. But now let's get a little bit more specific. Um, they're having difficulty uh, responding adaptively to changes. They're overreacting to cold, heat, They have a short-term memory problem. Light. Well, I guess what I would say about them is that um, we, we could use a generic term and ascribe it totally to uh, the way they were born, difficult temperament. Or we could dig a little bit deeper, and of course it's a little bit more challenging with an infant, but I truth is I think it's just as applicable. Or we could start talking about these skills that they're lacking. Um, this kid is lacking the ability to uh, self-soothe. That's a skill. It's actually not, a, you know, it's a skill that some infants actually have more than others. Can it be trained in it? That's, that's a little bit of a different question. But um, is, it, is it, he was born this way, difficult temperament. Is that going to take us far? Or are we going to get a lot further in terms of understanding what this infant is having difficulty with and what he needs from us? to start defining even an infant in terms of the skills that they're lacking. Uh, that's the direction I'd head in. And let's face it, some of those kids who are having difficulty self-soothing, having difficulty responding adaptively to changes, overreacting to heat, cold, light, noise, well, my goodness, they're still that way at six years old. Uh, yeah. Still that way at 10 years old. 
if, if we don't teach the skills, uh, I find that a lot of these kids stay pretty much the same. So we are talking management, not a cure. Well, I don't actually tend to talk in terms of cure. I'm not sure that I'm talking about management either. I'm talking about, um, and so once again, you're using terminology that wouldn't necessarily uh, be terminology that I would use. Um, I'm talking about moving development forward. If we solve the problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating a kid's challenging episodes, so that he's less challenging, we've moved development forward. He's less challenging. If in doing that, we are simultaneously teaching him many of the skills that we're lacking, that he's lacking. Have we managed him? I'm not sure I'd call it that. Have we cured him? I'm not sure I'd call it that. Have we moved development forward? That is exactly what I would call it. So I'm not sure that in the collaborative problem-solving sure. territories, we're, I don't think we're talking about cure or management. I think we're talking about making things incrementally better. How does collaborative problem-solving do that? By teaching lacking skills, by solving problems collaboratively. Make so you're sense? saying that the child with, with the uh, broken leg has a lagging skill and can't kick with that leg, so we teach him to use the other leg? Well, I guess that's one way to go at it. Uh, you're, you're returning once again to a, a physical metaphor that may not be quite applicable, but if I'm a kid to is having... A problem. It, yeah, I'm I don't know if I call that... He has a lagging skill. Uh, the lagging skill is he can't kick the ball. So I teach him to use the other leg, what he's not really comfortable with at first. But it is a skill he can learn. Well, there's no question it's a skill he can learn. I guess to go back to your original question, would I call that a cure? Well, he's still not that good at kicking with his, the leg that got broken, so I don't know if I'd no. call it a cure. No, would no. I call it management? I don't know if I'd call it that. Would I call it moving development forward so that he's at least able to kick a ball? I think that's exactly what I would call it. Thank you for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting questions, of course. Um, uh, goes to the heart of what we, some of the ways in which we have can potentially go astray with the challenging kids who we're working with. If we use terminology that is too generic, too global, and if we don't get down to the level of specific lagging skills and unsolved problems, makes it a lot harder to help a kid, and of course to move development forward. Truth is, um, what's what's the goal of school, whether it's academics or behavior? Move development forward. Uh, I know that maybe legislators would tell us do well on statewide mandated testing, but how do you do best on statewide mandated testing? You move development forward. What what's the role of parents in a kid's life? Move development forward. Soccer coaches, move development forward. Uh, Sunday school teachers, move development forward. If we stick with all of our generic labels that we often apply to challenging kids, uh, we don't move anything forward. The labels stick. Nothing improves. Things don't get better. Back to the original question that was the focal point of today's program. What's your school's vision for challenging kids in your building? Who are they? How do they get to be that way? What's the paperwork flow that helps you nail that down with each kid? How well do we communicate? How well do we keep track of what's going on with each kid so that we 
so that problems don't go into hibernation, what does the kid need from us? Regrettably, we have run out of time for yet another one of these programs. I want to wish everybody out there, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. This is one of my favorite times of year. Um, the leaves are all off the trees, by and large. Um, food is good. Uh, the weather starts to turn cold. Good time for families to get together. Um, I'm not going to get all corny on you and tell you to think about what you got and what you don't got, but um, nice time of year. I hope everybody out there has a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you'll join in next week yet again for next week's program. Uh, we're going to have a special guest next week. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but um, next week it's not going to be all me. It's going to be some other folks as well. I hope you can join in. Talk to you then. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.